And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network, which has other amazing podcasts like Business Made Simple, hosted by Donald Miller. Business Made Simple takes the mystery out of growing your business, so make sure you tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Today, my guest is Matt Higgins, an American businessman, author, and the co-founder and CEO of RSE Ventures, a private investment firm that focuses on sports and entertainment, media and marketing, food and lifestyle, and technology. In 2012, Higgins co-founded RSC with Stephen M. Ross, the founder of Related Companies and the owner of the Miami Dolphins. Higgins served as vice chairman of the Dolphins from 2012 to 2021, having previously been a high-level executive with the New York Jets. Now, we spoke about the Burn the Boats philosophy, the title of his new book, Why Trusting Our Instincts is So Important, How We Can Predict CEO Failure Based on One Particular Trait, Optimizing Anxiety, How We Got on Shark Tank, His First Investment, What He Looks For in Founders, and Why He Reminds Himself That He's Going to Die Five Times a Day. about to piss off every parent uh, who's listening to this right now, but the life event that set it all in motion, if I'm honest, is dropping out of high school. It's actually the single greatest decision I, I made throughout the course of my life, and it set everything in motion. I can tape you deeper into it if you want to go back in time. To the I would, steps I would actually love to, because that's a, obviously a very unpopular view, even though I have my own <laughs> opinions about whether or not college university is worth it and and mbas are worth it i've i've never made an argument for high school so so why is that um okay so a little bit of context uh when i was when i grew up in a place called uh, queens new york uh and uh, being taken care of by a single mother living in a shoebox apartment and you know these words tend to lose meaning abject poverty like what it's sort of you know it sort of lost loses its emotional resonance but like what does that really mean to say those words for me, it meant um, n- not sure what I was going to eat for dinner. It meant uh, getting government cheese, literally from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, a big block of cheddar cheese, by the way, of which I keep the empty box on my desk to this day years later to remind me where I came from. It meant selling flowers on street corners. That little kid who would knock on your window and say, excuse me, sir, would you like to buy some roses for your wife or on Mother's Day? It just meant it meant surviving. Uh, it meant uh, becoming a parent of another parent, you know, at a very young age, right? Because my, my mother had all sorts of health disabilities. And so that was the context I was born into. Uh, and 
uh, around 10, 11 years old. I was having all these odd, odd jobs. By the time I was 13, I got my first big, big boy job working at McDonald's. Uh, and my job was to get on my hands and knees and scrape the gum underneath the tables in the party room. Because if the gum were to land on somebody's dress, you know, ru ruin the party. So uh, that, that's, I can tell you everything about dried gum if you're interested. But that's the context, right? And so I spent a lot of my early years desperate, like any little kid when they see their parents suffering and they also want to be selfish, right? I was always juggling the idea of feeling like I was going to be a hero and save my mom and then being selfish and wanting to have a typical life, right? So those two things were happening in parallel. And a lot of my early years were spent just hoping a white knight would come. That there'd be some cavalry, you know, and I remember taking my mother to the ER because we didn't have insurance and just sitting there thinking, like, can anyone intervene? And my mother's health issues were very generic, uh, but they were compounding. She had obesity and thyroid gland disorder. So that's the context. And eventually I got to the point of saying, if, if I don't have a tra trajectory changing event, uh, we're facing imminent disaster. My mother's going to die. I'm unhappy with my life. And I can't keep up school at this pace anyway. And I had an epiphany, um, which is the following. My mother actually went back to school. She was a high school dropout, but she was brilliant, born into her own dysfunction. And I watched her go get a GED. And she, as a nine-year-old boy, she would take me to classes at Queens College on the weekends. And I was probably around 13, 14. I, I had an epiphany like, wait, if I, and I had it because I was looking through a penny saver, a free newspaper in Queens. And I was looking at the job section and it said, you know, $9 an hour delivering flyers, college students only. And I was like, college students only? How do I become a college student faster? And I had this idea, well, what if I dropped out of high school at 16, got a GD and got into college because my mother got into a GD. And I remember going to college night at high school once I enrolled in high school. And I, and I was like, excuse me, sir. You know, if I were to, if I were to, if somebody were to have a GD and they did really well, you know, could they get admitted to your august institution? And, and I talk about this in a book. It's like a degree of noblesse oblige. You're like, yes, young man, we believe in second chances. You know, very remote scenario, obviously, right? Um, and so that set in motion, like, I'm going to do something radical because that's what the situation calls for is a radical change. I'm going to drop out. But I also knew that um, every time I surfaced this idea to any adult, they said, you're absolutely crazy, including the guidance counselor, that I was going to ruin my future because of the stigma of being a high school dropout that if I didn't actually make it impossible for me to do anything else, I was going to back out. Like, in other words, if there was an, any possibility of salvaging high school, I wouldn't go through with it. So I decided I was going to fail every single class and get left back. And so I spent over two and a half years in, a, in, in the same homeroom with, a, I called it the land of misfit toys. Some of the kids with beepers on, taking very different career choices. Equally ambitious, but just different. Um, and then the... Uh, and then the moment of truth came. So I, my reason why I isolate that decision is, I, number one, people didn't have the context for why I was making it. Because when you're growing up poor, you're doing everything you can to hide it. We all carry around a degree of shame. So you have to be careful about the advice you get uh, unless you've been fully transparent with, where, with the context. So my guidance counselor didn't have the context and my mother was degrading in the room next door. Um, no, number two, when your back is against the wall, you tend to make the best decisions, right? A lot of clarity came with the poverty and with the desperation of taking care of a parent, right? And number three, when you see an angle, don't wait for validation. 
right? You don't need validation if, if your instincts are telling you this is the right plan for me, even though no one's ever gone in this direction before. Nobody would affirmatively torpedo high school to be a high school dropout, but it actually made a lot of sense to go from making three seventy five at McDonald's or $5 at the, at the uh, de deli on Woodhaven Boulevard to nine bucks as a college student, as crazy as that sounds, because the most important thing was I needed to get out of this situation. So I dropped out of high school, and a year later I went to my prom as president of the debate team. And I remember seeing the Mr. my guidance counselor and my teachers and the look of pity, because it was pity when I dropped out, like what a shame, what a waste, to one of respect with one chess move. So that single burn the boats move is the reason why I wrote this book. It's the, it's the reason why I was on Shark Tank. And we can get into everything else, but you asked me, so I gave you an unpopular answer. I'm sorry, moms and dads out there, but now that you have the context, it's not as simple as telling everybody to just drop out of high school. No, but you were very clear on your vision. And you know what? The one thing that I see emulated in a lot of successful individuals, it's always the chip on the shoulder. It's always the, we got it. There's a reason why you're so clear on your vision. And there's a reason, like, you didn't just drop out of high school. And again, like a lot of other kids who dropped out of high school, maybe they had, maybe they had alternative career choices. You're very purposeful and strategic, but that chip on your shoulder, I always, the the burn burn the boats is is a great is a great concept, but the chip on the shoulder makes it possible, and you had this environment that forced you to not have an anger, but just have a little bit of uh, unhappiness with the situation that you were in. So I always like to pull out that origin story, but then I also like to ask you, how does somebody manufacture that feeling? Because that's hmm. what it takes to be successful. I love this question, by the way. I talk about it in the book, you know, the burn the boats, um, when I break down these common patterns of successful individuals, successful leaders, and you isolated one of them, which is defiance. I actually, I, I use an industrial psychologist way too much. Everybody's always, you and the psychologist, but like, I, I think the fish rots from the head, right? So I always try to get the head right and, and, and look under the hood when I'm making, writing a check. But one of the qualities that she identified um, that repeats over and over again is defiance. That when you're overly, overly deferential to the status quo or to others, you can't have breakout success. So while, you know, I like the way you distinct, distinguish it, I don't really have a chip on my shoulder, I'm not bitter. I left that experience incredibly empathetic and I, I retain that empathy, but I am defiant. And I, and I have found the worst decisions I've made of when I've tried to outsource my judgment to supposed experts, because a exceptional generalist will have much better judgment than a mediocre specialist, specialist all day long. And so defiance is a career thing. So how do you manufacture it a bit? One, you had to believe it, that it's necessary. And two, honestly, it stems from self-worth. Self like if you really believe in yourself and believe in your destiny and believe that there, there's better for you and you're not entitled to better for, but deserving of better for, you will seek it out and you will be defiant when somebody's trying to force you to accept mediocrity. We see it manifest all the time in the relationship context. When I see somebody tolerating a partner who's putting them down putting them in their place, you know, or is just unhappy. It's usually for one of two reasons. One, you don't believe you deserve better, or two, you don't believe better exists, right? And they're very, they're nuanced and they're different. But if you approach every situation with a degree of defiance, where your base case is, what's the best I can have in this situation, you will always be a little bit wary of accepting mediocrity for yourself.
That's a great. Uh, that's a great answer. I love that. And I've never heard chip on the shoulder reframed as defiance, but it's a much more positive way to look at it. I've never. Yeah, because because like, like, yeah. people people will say to me, oh, "You still got a chip?" I'm like, I actually don't have a chip. I like cry in like a heartbeat when somebody when I encounter somebody else's pain. I have the opposite yeah. of the chip. You know, I have defiance and insistence and unrelenting energy, but but I'm not bitter. So okay, so let now now you've moved yourself out of this really destitute situation that you're in. Um, burn the boats at later stages in your career. What does that actually look like for you? So, and, and I think it's good to frame a little bit what the phrase mean, why I became obsessed with this idea. It actually, actually yeah, because I think we've heard, some of us have heard this before, but I've never heard somebody yeah. go so into the weeds on it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's funny. I remember I was with Mark Cuban at a, an event and I made this burn, you know, burn the boats reference. And he's like, burn the boats. What are you talking about? And I was like, oh, I thought, I thought this is sort of like in the vernacular. And I realized it's not entirely. So what, where does the phrase come from? Throughout recorded history, from time immemorial, you'll see military strategists will invoke this idea that they way, the way they got their army to overcome improbable odds, they were outnumbered 10 to one, whatever the case is, that they literally burned the boats. They eliminated their escape, out, their escape hatch. Uh, art of war, they refer to burn the boats in the cooking pots. And the reason why is that humans perform better when they have no plan B. They have no, you know, escape route. Now, these tend to be some pretty nasty people in history. So I've, I've appropriated this military doctrine and decided to use it for the rest of us in peacetime. So let's forget Caesar, you know, <laughs> Sun Tzu and, uh, and Cortez and, yeah. uh, and pull it forward for our own life. So I, I, I got obsessed with this idea. And then when I worked for the New York Jets, for those who don't know, I used to oversee the business of the New York Jets back in the day. And I worked with Rex Ryan as a coach. And, you know, Rex is this just animated individual, wears his heart on his sleeve and can fire anybody up. And we were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in the playoffs and the underdog. And Rex gave a speech about this idea of burn the boats. I'm just asking you to go all in for one day and don't worry about what happens if we fail. Don't worry about the consequences. Just give me everything you got for one quarter, one half. It was, I think it was a halftime speech. No, it was the night before for one day. And the team won. And you could feel, it was palpable in the room, how catalytic this idea of just surrender to the goal, submit, let it go. And so I said, okay, that is, I wanna prove to, to people uh, that humans perform better without a safety net. And I want to approach it from two different angles. One, I want to approach it empirically. So I want to survey history, psychology, and, and science to prove that humans actually perform better without a plan B. And the reason why is when they, when a lot of folks hear the title of this book, they reflexively say, well, I can't take on risk. This is irresponsible. I, it's called burn the boats, not burn the boats with you in it. And it's not called blow up the bridges. Right. So the idea is eliminate your plan B. That doesn't part of the process of doing so is actually processing the worst case scenario. One of the I talk about this in the book. One of the first steps is to synthesize and recognize what's the worst that can happen if this big move I'm about to make goes wrong. And by doing that, you now can peacefully accept the risk because you've already processed, you know, the downside. So one, I want to approach it from science and history and psychology. But the other is I want to provide actionable case studies, illustrations so that you wouldn't distance yourself from the individual. What do I mean by that? Uh, like I'm on Shark Tank. If you met me and I look well-dressed, you can make lots of assumptions about me. I teach at Harvard Business School. You could assume that I was born on third base, right? I want to deconstruct who I am so you see the origin and the journey and you could say, oh, you were a high school dropout. Oh, you have imposter syndrome. You were divorced and you're embarrassed by it and you went through a lot of pain. You suffer from anxiety. You have a degree of lingering PTSD. You're not over your stuff, right? Like. 
I, it's very important to me to manifest in this world as a representation of how I got there, not where I am. And I then um, broke down 50 different individuals that, that from every different angle, founders, billionaires, actresses, Scarlett Johansson is a friend of mine, uh, an Olympian who became a paraplegic at 14 and thinks her life is better off for it, an activist who was, who was uh, the victim of sexual abuse when she was a child from her nanny, every angle so that those who reflexively say, I can't afford to burn the boats and I can't afford to let go of my plan B, and those people are different from me, I wanted to offer so many different case studies that it would be hard not to identify with something. And the second part, Instagram is full of so many, you know, empty platitudes, you know, sunny, sunny advice, like burn the boats, you know, get out there. Like that stuff is useless. It doesn't last more than 30 seconds, a little adrenaline hit. I hope what I've done with the book is provided an actionable blueprint to, to, for, to embrace a growth mindset and to just let go, like shed your shame, shed the things that are holding you back and move beyond the rhetoric into actually actionable advice. And okay, so let's, so let's lay out like a little bit of this framework yeah. um, so people can understand it. So what is, what is the framework that you actually teach over? Because obviously this is probably something that you've seen, again, across all those leaders that you just mentioned, you've probably seen it with, um, I'm assuming some of the successful investments you made on Shark Tank, obviously in your own life as well. So what's, what are the, the main points of that framework? Okay, great. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone, and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com 
Com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed 
on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Um, it's, it's all, well, one, number one, the whole concept is premised on the idea that the true joy of living is in the striving. And, the, you know, when you go to the top of the mountaintop and you look around, you realize there's nothing to see. That the joy was the climbing when you were looking up, trying to get there, not looking down and looking around. So that's number one. So I think I think that's true for like 99% of the population. So we begin there. So how do you live a life of perpetual growth? And how do you, and um, the things that stand in our way are either internal obstacles and external obstacles. So I say any journey of transcendence, crossing the threshold to make that bull move begins by unlocking the greatest arbitrage entirely within our control, which is self-awareness, right? It's figuring out what is it in me that's preventing me from making that bold move. You know, it's in, whether it's imposter syndrome and I talk about how to overcome it, whether it's shame. I think a lot of the reasons why leaders um, underperform is because they haven't gone through the exercise of shedding shame. So how do you create a place and space for you to go ahead and let go of your vulnerability it's how do you retrain your, the voice in your head to be your greatest ally rather than your greatest enemy? I talk a lot about um, sabotage. And so th- with it's a little bit similar to what I do when I'm assessing an investment is I analyze and look under the hood because the fish rots from the head, as the Italians say. So you need to undertake that own exercise for yourself. My book takes you through the journey of how I did it myself, but how other leaders have reflected upon what's holding them back and overcome those internal obstacles. And then there are the external obstacles that stand in your way. Uh, I go through the uh, the corporate saboteurs, you know, and I tried to put into words things we all feel, and I'll make it a little uh, abstract. They are these archetypes that manifest in a corporate setting as leaders, CEOs, managers, and they're either victims, they're martyrs, they're corporate gaslighters. The one that I think um, a lot of people can relate to is this idea of a withholder. So what's a withholder? A withholder is someone who um, recognizes that uh, an employee or a partner in a relationship context is a pleaser and is dependent upon validation and affirmation in order to sustain themselves, right? And they understand that if they if they withhold that recognition, that praise, they destabilize that individual, that pleaser, and they'll work that much harder to go ahead and over and get that approval, right? So there, are, I tried to in the book deconstruct these unsaid things that operate upon us that hold us back, that prevent us from going, that destabilize us, so that if you can identify it, you can deal with it. And I, I love the withholder one because when I mention this to people, go, oh, I feel that, I feel like somebody is denying me the praise that I need, and I'm, and one, I'm sad that I can't get it, and two, I'm sad that I need it. And so I think what you find when you read the book, again, that's pretty abstract stuff we're talking about, but you know, you can reduce these things that are operating on us that are holding us back into words, articulate them and then manage them. And so for each of these ideas, I come up with strategies for how to, how to move beyond them and talk about how I did it in my own personal life. And, and one thing you mentioned, um, you, you mentioned perpetual growth. And, and then when you adopt this mindset, this is almost a forever mindset that you apply to your life. So for people listening, this could be very stressful because now they're thinking, oh, if I really want to make it, I always have to be uncomfortable. I always have to be growing. I, I always have to, you know, I, I got the next career advancement or I, I launched the side hustle, turned it into a company. And now what do I have to burn next so that I take it to the next level? So I get that you have to enjoy the journey, but th- does this not turn into perpetual stress, perpetual discontent? Um, how do you mitigate that so that you still enjoy what you're doing if you're always putting yourself into this position of high stress, high growth? 
Such a great question. I talk about this in the book too, because if, if positioned the wrong way, you'd be like, stop, like I'm good. So, so a couple of thoughts on that. Um, it is only stressful if you live in a per per perpetual place of anticipation, if you're never present, if you're always worried and thinking about, you know, what's going to happen the downside. I talk a lot in my book about um, how, to how, to how to retain your group grip on the moment and how much um, contemplating my own mortality factors into this philosophy. I have an app on my phone called We Croak. Five times a day, it sounds actually crazy, but five times a day in, in different ways, it reminds me that I'm going to die. It's a different philosophical message from Socrates or somebody else. It's, it's a little bit of stoicism built into that. That's right. A little bit, of, a lot of bit of stoicism, right? Yeah. On the simple idea that that when you're reminded of your mortality, the number one thing that we all fear, it actually does the opposite of what we're afraid of. It makes us peacefully locked in on the moment. So number one, in order to have a, a joyful life of perpetual pursuit, you actually have to stay pre uh, present, which is you know counterintuitive. The second thing is it's okay to take a break. It's okay to, I talk in the book about consolidating gains. You achieve a new milestone, you consolidate it, you go ahead and you lock it in. You don't wanna be a grasshopper where you're jumping from one team into the next. The point is, sooner or later, if you're like most people, melancholy will set in because you don't feel challenged. So my the point of the book is not you have to perpetually jump in a frantic way from one thing to the next. The sequence is burn the boats, achieve what you previously thought was unachievable, consolidate your gains because what's the point of achieving things and then the accomplishment is eroded because you didn't focus enough to make it scale scale yourself right so that it works in your apps absence or with less energy right i talk in the book how i taught at harvard business school it was really really hard the first time the second time less hard third time every time you re repeat something through habituation you unlock more energy for you to allocate to something else. So again, I, I want to make very clear to anybody listening. I'm not arguing that you have to live a life of perpetual discontent. I'm I'm asserting that eventually you will feel mel melancholy like every Olympian, a marathon runner who finishes the race and you will want another race. And so the, the, the thing that holds us back are these internal and external obstacles. I try to deconstruct them so that you can figure out how to one, burn the boats, two, consolidate the gains, and then three, continue on. Um, one of the concepts in the book is backing the jockey, not just the horse. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a bit of a cliche, but there's reasons for these cliches, right? It ju it's just that the, some of the worst deals I've ever done in my life have been when I draft behind a private equity firm that has supposed reams of data and diligence and Excel sheets. Like, it's just all nonsense. The answers are always about the individual, but that's it feels inaccessible, borderline mystical. And so... The folks who under index on EQ want it to be about the numbers and it isn't about the numbers. It's about the jockey. So it's just something I strongly believe in. And I put a lot of energy into, like I said before, looking under the hood and figuring out what makes people tick. I'm actually curious because obviously we're, we're speaking um, more generalized, but a lot of the audience here is founders, entrepreneurs, and obviously very interested in your opinion on that because you, you, you work with a lot of them. Um, so I want to pull some lessons out from what you've seen with all the companies that you've invested in as a, you know, building a private equity firm, also as, uh, as a, an actual angel venture capitalist. Um, but let's talk about uh, Shark Tank. That's always a fun topic. So I'm actually curious why, because you have great business ideas, experience, but why did they choose you? What's, what's, the, what's the differentiator with you that allows you to be on that show? What's the value add? Uh, I mean... Also a great question. 
the one that I asked myself when the lights went on saying, wait, wait, what? That's <laughs> <laughs> Cuban looked at me like, who invited this guy? Uh, why did they choose me? I, I, if I'm honest, I chose myself and then I manifested it. If you held me up against the constellation of, yeah, I mean, let's just be honest. If you held me up against the constellation of people who've tried to be on that show or want to be on that show or pretend like they don't want to be, you know, there are some serious, huge CEOs out there. The difference is, I thought it was possible. I thought I belonged on that set. And I worked for a year of my life to put myself in a position to do it. In the end, why did they choose it is because they thought the origin story was compelling and I had something to share. They thought the way I, you know, I approach business was intelligent, you know, probably wanted a New Yorker, you know, who <laughs> kind of like there was a whole range of things. But I think that's the end of the story is less interesting than the beginning that somebody like myself who you know, objectively didn't have any business being on the set at the time, reached out to some random producer and said, will you give me a minute? And I met him on, uh, his name is Clay Newbill. Uh, my, my agent got me a meeting. I'd never been on a Hollywood set, period. And the sun was setting. And he said he'd meet me for coffee. It was supposed to be 15 minutes. You know, hour and a half later, we're talking about what we're talking about right now. So it began with the belief that I belonged there and that I was willing to put in the work and the uncomfortable energy and the honestly, the embarrassment and ridicule and the audacity to put myself on that set. I just want to take a second to thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. It's time to get out of your spreadsheets. With HubSpot CRM, you get real-time data at your fingertips so your team stay in sync across the customer journey. You track your contacts and customers, send personalized emails in bulk, and get the context you need to create amazing experiences for your teams and customers at scale, all from one powerful platform. It's why more than 150,000 companies already use HubSpot CRM to run their business better. Plus, HubSpot's user-friendly interface sets you up for success from day one so you can spend less time managing software and more time on what matters, your customers. There's no better time to get organized. Learn how HubSpot can help your business grow better and get a special offer of 20% off on eligible plans at hubspot.com slash success pod. And now I love the answer because I'm sure a lot of people ask you and I will ask you, you know, like what makes a great investment and what what a great founder looks like. But I love the lessons that you pull out from your own story, to be quite honest, like you're very self aware and this totally goes well, because I because we're talking right now. And it's hard for me because sometimes people will be like, well, you don't have to tell all that. I just say it's because you're one of the biggest investors in the country, whatever nonsense. And I'm like, well, it's not true. Like it could be true, and it's sort of true on one plane. It is sort of true, <laughs> but right, no, but, but like, but, but I don't think that's the accurate truth. And if I yeah. say that, the reason why it's important to me to be transparent about this, I want somebody listening this to not separate yourself from me, right? And think, oh well, you're that's why you are. No, 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 no. I like I I I worked hard at it. And I also don't want to perpetuate this idea that they chose me, right? Because that's another thing. Well, of course, right? Like they chose me. It may look that way now because of my credentials, right? But I don't know. We do a disservice when we don't pull back the curtain, in my opinion, and we perpetuate the myth and then people feel like the myth is not for them. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so when you when you work with all these different founders and you work with all these different entrepreneurs, um, what do you look for in because I'm a I'm a founder centric investor. I'm very bullish on the person like you just mentioned. You know, it's it's great to go into the spreadsheets and the data, but you can sell everything with a great spreadsheet and a great PowerPoint. Like it really, it really depends on the person who's running the company. So what do you look for? What is, what is the characteristics of a, a business leader? I'm sure some of them are actually discussed in your book because that's what you look for to invest in, but just quantify it for me a little bit. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's eliminate intellect, table stakes, right? Degree yeah. of intelligence. Um, 
uh, just to go to the you know the core issues right number one i want to feel like the universe or god put this person on this earth to pursue this business so i want to see a connective tissue to something in the person's life or their values that led them to create this specific business because that connective tissue is going to be the thing that sustains them in the dark hours right when nothing is manifesting or playing out as as that powerpoint so i want to make sure that the why is strong enough to sustain someone because that helps de-risk my check right so those are just like two specific you know examples and then in terms of the person i am above all else back to what i said before i'm looking for proxies of self-awareness because and again this i love that i'm talking to you and founders who are listening to this, they can understand what i'm about to say right why is why is that so important every single ceo founder listening to this is going to have to pivot their business at some point right and I, I believe that every one of us is given us an uh, given an opportunity um, to avoid disaster uh, before it's too late, right? The 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 universe is benevolent fundamentally, in my opinion. And if you look back to some of the worst decisions you've ever made in your life, you can identify the moments where like, oh, if only I just had, you know, like we all have them if we're honest. And so, the 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 ones who make the pivots and the course corrections before it's too late are the ones who don't need to see the um, iceberg port side in order to steer clear, right? Like the ones who could, and I always say, I can determine and predict the, few, the success of a CEO by how much data they have to have in order to make a decision that is objectively inevitable. Like you are gonna hit that iceberg. Do you really need it to be 10 feet away or can you forecast? And so, so self-awareness will enable you to look for those icebergs to be, intellectually curious about them so you can find them. And then a degree of confidence and humility will be the reason why you act upon that insight. So why those two together? Confidence gives you the willingness to look within, the willingness to sort of ask the questions about why, why might I be wrong? Humility gives you the comfort to acknowledge it publicly and not worry about judgment, right? To recognize that, you know, there but by the grace of God go I and we all make mistakes. So that's a lot to like unpack, but I'm telling you 100% when I'm talking to somebody, I'm looking for that. So what was interesting about Shark Tag, you have 40 minutes to figure all those things out, you know, consistent with my philosophy. So I'm looking for little tells, signals, right? That, that are, are part. So I'll give you an example on the, on the set of Shark Tag. You know when you have an investor come on and one of the more assertive sharks will say like a Mark Cuban or Kevin O'Leary be like, you know, this business is dumb. You should change the name and you should no longer sell widgets. You should open a brick and mortar. And the person's like, great idea, Mark Cuban. I will abandon my business and I will open it. If, if only you'll go ahead and, you know, become my investor, right? And like right, that little microcosm of an exchange tells you a lot about the person. It tells me you don't really have conviction in your vision. It tells me you're willing to do anything you, you know, you want to go ahead and, you know, get the check, et cetera, and et cetera. So, I, I, I stay very closely to my core philosophy that it's about self-awareness manifesting as confidence and humility. And I have a bunch of signals that I'll look for. And that's why I use industrial psychologists a lot when I'm writing a large check because I want to efficiently get under the hood and see if I can identify it. it now, if I see somebody under indexing for any of that, it doesn't mean I don't write the check or I dismiss them. It means I have an honest conversation about the things that I pick up and say, hey, I'm, I'm picking up that you're somebody who won't take feedback. Or I'm picking up, you're using the word I a lot, but this was clearly a we situation, but you say I, right? I, I, and so I'll give somebody the data. And by the way, as you can see, as we're doing on this podcast, I'll also create space for vulnerability by sharing you know, my story to see how people respond to it. 
and how do you wait? Cause that's a great that's a great problem to solve for because you just mentioned that if somebody is uh, so so uh, passionate about what they're building, that's great. But then you don't want them to waver too much if somebody who's influential offers a new idea. But how do you gauge whether or not um, they're coachable and they're willing to learn versus they're they're mission oriented and they're they're steadfast in their idea? which could be a benefit, but it could be a detriment if taken to the extreme because then they won't listen to any outside advice. So how do you, how do you balance that out? Well, you know, Jeff, Jeff, uh, Jeff Bezos has this great quote, right? You want, you want to be, you want to be rigid in, in your vision and flexible in your execution. So I do look for a degree of steadfastness in the vision, but that is not, um, that is not in, in opposition to, uh, being intellectually curious about where your execution is wrong or intellectually curious about other people's opinions, right? Those two are not, I, I, uh, to, to a detriment sometimes, I, I take all these inputs, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not one of those people. Like Gary Vaynerchuk is amazing. Like he blocks out all the criticism. I don't block it out because I want to sift through for nuggets of truth. Sometimes I relate like, uh, has a point. So I'm looking for the rigidity and the conviction on the vision but I'm looking for flexibility in the inputs and intellectual curiosity. And so now you obviously don't want to be destabilized by those, right? So if I see somebody who, you know, can't handle it or, you know, the shoulders are all slouched because they're criticized once, like that's, that's that, you know, we need to do a reset. But I, I don't, I don't think it's that hard to reconcile those two because I don't think they're incompatible. And, and in all the, in all the investments that you've made, um, let's take it back to even when you first started investing, so your your investing career commenced, what was that first investment? What did it look like? Was it a success? Was it a massive failure? Do you even want to talk about it? If not, that's okay too. No, that's great. Uh, I will say when I first partnered with Steve Ross, uh, who's amazing and one of the greatest entrepreneurs, uh, you know, most of his career is in real estate and he's known for that, but actually incredibly dynamic and delightful and curious, always trying to shake things up. But um, when I first presented this idea, I will partner with you on the dolphins and help oversee the team. But my real passion is to creating things from inception and, and backing great people and helping unlock their potential. I had some specific ideas that I had talked to him about. And one of them was this crazy guy who sells wine named Gary Vaynerchuk and, and uh, you know, this firm that he was building in social media. You were trying to sell him jets tickets from what I, I understand. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I had Gary was on, was on my, was our original conversation, believe it or not. Um, and then, um, another one was a guy named Jesse Darris. So I'll use that as the case study. Cause that was in fact, the first deal that we did. Um, there was a young man named Jesse and I had hired him to do public relations, uh, uh at different points in my career. And I think he was 27 at the time. And he's one of those people that, um, is able to identify the patterns of the universe in a way that is almost mystical and makes you a little bit uncomfortable and feel violated. Like, how do you know how this is going to play out, right? I used to always say the practitioner of the dark arts, you know. Um, but I, but I, remember I had a conversation with, with him all the time. You will own your own firm one day. And by the way, just FYI, if you don't end up owning your own firm, you made a big mistake in your future. But we'll just leave it at that. And those were the coaching sessions we'd have. And then when I partnered up, I said, I want to try to put him in business and help create his own firm. And I, and I, I talk about this in the book about how I called Jesse up. We went for a walk and I painted a picture of the way sliding doors of how his life could play out. On the one hand, you know, continue to work. Hope that your name ends up on the door one day. 
you know, you think you'll launch your firm when you're when when you're 40, but at that point you'll have kids and 529 plans to worry about, and your actually your risk tolerance will go down, not increase. Um, or you can quit, and we'll backstop it. We'll we'll build a firm together, and we'll get going. And like he did it, he quit, and just a few months ago he sold that firm for tens of millions of dollars. He is fantastically wealthy. Not that that's the object of the exercise, but it's one it's one way we keep score. Uh, and 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 I and and the the money part is is great, but what would what would what would feel so magical is going from an idea, a conversation, a walk in a park, you know, us trying to figure out how do we get email addresses, like how does you know where do we where do we where, where do we where, how does the whole cloud thing work, right? And then walking into a room and seeing you know eighty people work for us. Like it actually makes me emotional. Like that is incredible. So that that was the first deal I ever did, and then um, and then the second what deal was Gary. What made you decide Grant. on him? What what, huh? what made you decide on what made you decide on him? I just number one, the product was so great. The quality of his advice was fantastic. Two, um, I love him. He's like um, a brother, but man, he could be a pain in the ass. And he just is really convicted, you know. And like that's why I said he would speak truth to power. I'd watch him in these situations like, you didn't just say that. <laughs> like, like you just told that CEO, by the way, why'd you tell me that? You know? And so at first I would look at, I would call him like a punk. Like, well, I can't believe you're giving me this advice. And I'm like, I can't believe you're giving me this advice. Your advice is probably right. I think I needed to hear it. <laughs> so, you know, so the product was great. But then, but then running a company is a lot more than the product. It's like, do you have, and, and because he had such strong conviction about principles about how he would like to run something if he was in charge you know when you see somebody with very strong principles about what they would do if they were the boss that's a pretty big part of the foundation of one day being a boss right and when i would talk to him this is how i would do it this is who i would hire this is a, i knew okay what he was missing um was the capacity to burn the boats he had all these reasons you know to hedge hesitate this is what happens when i talk to folks a lot i talk about this in a book i love this idea I think most people, when presented with an opportunity to grow, reflexively or instinctively choose incrementalism over step change. So what I mean by that is they presume that in order for me to get to where I really want to go, I got to make all these little stops along the way. Well, I want to I want to own a lemonade you know conglomerate, but I got to make a lemonade stand first, you know, outside my house. Like so, Jesse at the time felt like, you know, maybe I need to do this. Maybe I, you know I need more seasoning and. I love challenging that because 90% of the time we are manufacturing uh, reasons to delay getting to our ultimate destination. 90% of the time we are overestimating the value of experience because you already have the experience. You just don't have the title. You just don't have the recognition from society. So that was Jesse's case. That was the one thing we had to overcome. And again, also talk about that. And he overcame it and he ended up reaping the rewards. And, and what, what advice do you have for people that are in that mindset that are playing small? I, I would say, take a step back and audit all the reasons why you think you knew you need to do X before you could do Z, right? Ask yourself, and, and, and here's what oftentimes is the origin. You feel like you need to do um, X because you're embarrassed that somebody's going to believe you're not ready to do the thing you really want to do. Or you believe that, well, dad, my dad feels like first I should get an accounting degree before I do whatever it is I really want to do. There's usually an external voice of approval that is telling you you shouldn't be allowed to do it yet. Or 
there's a partner because you're in a bad relationship who keeps cutting you down every time you have an audacious goal, who keeps finding ways to undercut your ambition. It's true. I talk about this, like we are all partnering often with frenemies of some sort or another. And sometimes we end up, you know, married to them. And, and so there's usually something that is telling a person and contradicting their instincts. So I say, all right, isolate the reasons why you're choosing incrementalism over a step change. And then two, ask yourself what, it, what the step change looks like and start looking, can I, can I pull it off? I have a great story. I teach at you know, HBS, right? And I had a student come to my office once and he worked, he was a military special forces guy, uh, special operations and, and um, just brilliant and had an idea for his own fund. He had the deal flow to do it. He had the experience, in my opinion, to do. He had everything. But he came to meet with me and he said, hey, I'm in New York because I'm about to take a job with a big private equity firm. I'm like, well, you don't look too happy. He's like, it's not my first choice. And I said, well, what do you want to do? He's like, well, I really want to have a fund. I have all this deal flow. And I'm like, well, why won't you do it? And he goes, he goes well, well, who's going to write me a check? I said, nobody, until somebody writes you the check. So, you know, I, I don't get it. We have a great conversation. I assume he takes a job, calls me up a few months later. He said, hey, I want to get your address. I said, well, for what? To send you some swag. Swag from what? The firm that I created when I walked out of your office. I was like, stop. He's like, yeah, I raised $10 million. Now I'm raising $50 million. Like, yeah, I love it. Good. So anybody listening who's making small moves, just like when I sat on the steps of Cardo's high school and dropped out and said, why do I need high school? That single decision compounded my success dramatically. I would, I would, I would urge you just to consider whether you're manufacturing reasons for why you can't make that big move. And, and another concept, again, another concept that I love how, by the way, this book actually walks through the whole, the whole cycle of a, of, a, of a founder journey. So it gets them off the ground, <clears throat> but then it walks you through all the different things you're going to have to basically overcome as you're building out literally anything, any category, any industry. Um, one of the concepts by the way, is optimizing. By the way, thank you. Thank you for reading the book. I mean, did you find it helpful? Now I have to ask you. Like now, I, no, it I, was I, actually. I, I so I actually, I actually really enjoyed it because it does walk you. through everything that I've dealt with myself personally, um, and I find that it doesn't leave a lot lacking. So there's actually there's two more points that I want to pull out that I I found in the book that are helpful for the founder because I've hit these at various stages in my own career, um, but yes, it, it's it's exceptional, and I actually appreciate that it it, it it speaks from a place of experience. So, no, my my pleasure. It's it's well done. Is this your first book, by the way? Yeah, my first book. Yeah, yeah. I, like it's I worked damn really good. hard on that. Uh, what? Good for you. Thank good you. For no, you. I, no, I worked like. Well, I mean, it's it's. I was I used the word extra in a positive context. It's definitely a little yeah. extra. Like, interviewing fifty people was quite an undertaking. But I find a lot of these books, when somebody's in a position of authority or prominence, yeah. they write a book because they have permission from society to write a book, and they don't worry whether the book is useful. I really tried to not make it an autobiography because I don't really care. And I presume yeah. what people I wanted to provide value to the reader, and I tried to keep you, Scott, at the center of the journey, and not me, Matt. You know, and hopefully I, I totally get it. I totally get it. Um, a concept that you you discuss, uh, optimizing anxiety. Um, I want to I want you to explain that concept, how to do it. Obviously, if you've built anything, <laughs> sometimes you're like in a perpetual state of anxiety. Um, and then there's one last point that I want to go into, and then and then we'll close it out, and we'll tell people where to go to get this and and connect with you. But uh, optimize anxiety. What does that mean? Oh, well, how do we how do we do it? Yeah. So great question. I talk openly in the book about anxiety. I think anybody who's you know uber successful doing hard things probably has a degree of anxiety propelling them, either. Um, and then uh, 
And then uh, there is a, a, a good degree of science around this idea of optimal anxiety, right? Which is the balance between a certain amount of anxiety is actually needed to produce exceptional effort. So you don't want to walk away from that. And too much anxiety can obviously render you paralyzed. And so how do you constantly strike a balance between those two situations? So number one, to put it yourself in a position of anxiety, you need to be doing things that are a bit uncomfortable. That's a fact. And you need to look at the feeling of being uncomfortable as a feedback loop, as actual confirmation that you are engaging in a perpetual growth mindset. And again, those sound like words, but it's sort of true. It's very peaceful when you say, oh, I feel uncomfortable and distressed. I feel a degree of imposter syndrome. I'm like, okay, good. Well, you've put yourself in the arena. That's number one. Um, I'm a huge believer in, in self-talk in the third person. Lots of science shows that self-talk with the, in the third person is creates this super ego that you that you defer to as an authority that can calm you down. So I go through lots of different ways to bring it into balance and talk about ways in which I have been completely crushed by anxiety and they you know can derail, derail the outcome. I think the most important part is that we all have an open conversation that anxiety is not a proxy for necessarily illness and not a proxy for necessarily things are wrong. It's potentially a feedback loop. You just need to keep the two you know, in equilibrium. And and last question to pull out of this, and so now we're, we're still going along the founder's journey or, or anyone's journey really, but what happens when you go all in and you fail? Mm, uh, well, it will. And- <laughs> 100% it will. <laughs> so first I have to say that I am not one of those people that you know fetishizes failure. Some of this, the rhetoric we use just feels so dishonest and inauthentic, like failure is amazing. You know, I'm so glad I failed today. Like, that's not true. I hate failure and I do everything I can to avoid it. And it rocks my world when I do. Um, but I do think that if you can adopt a mindset, a process, it can make it manageable. So one of the things I found that um, with some of the most widely, wildly successful people, Let's just start with some billionaires that I talked to, or friends in a book. Mark, Mark, uh, uh, Michael Rubin is a great example. Is a CEO of Fanatics, right? What I found with him and, and and many other really successful people is that anytime they encounter a specific incident of failure, right, they simply widen the definition of success to accommodate that fa failure on the road to success. It's amazing. It's like, it's almost instinctive. Sometimes from afar, it looks delusional. Like, no, that was like a big miss. Nope. Nope. As a result of doing that, now I'm, now I'm able to, you know, et cetera, do whatever. So my overall advice is, um, number one, never allow your identity to be enmeshed with a specific failure. So I never use the language. I am a failure. I never allow myself to believe that, but I do use the words I have failed. That's number one. Two, remain intellectually curious about that failure. Dissect exactly what happened. What can you extract from it? What value you can create? Three, I buried in the desert. And I never pay my respects again to it. So I just, you know, move on. But I, I'm sharing the first part about the billionaires because it contradicts what I just said. They have a unique ability to reflect the losses, repel them, and absorb the wins in what almost appears delusional. I do not have that capacity. If you wish to be an incredible multi-billionaire, work on the uh, degree of delusion that anytime you fail, you're like, no, nope, no big deal. That I really meant to do that actually, and just widen. That That is the common thread and I talk about it in the book, but for the rest of us mere mortals like myself, we need a process to ensure that we never allow our identity to be enmeshed with a single act of failure. And that's how I do it. So I'll talk to some other folks and they're not even intellectually curious about why they failed. 
and those te- those people do tend to be extre- extremely successful and weirdly resilient. I unfortunately don't have that thick skin, and I need to process failure. Um, okay, so where should people go to connect with you? To, when, when is the book coming out? Where can they get it? I'm assuming all the regular places, but still, uh, drop me all the links. Okay, great. So the book is available now. You can go to Amazon. It's uh, Burn, Burn the Boats. You can go to my website, Burn the Boats Book. Uh, I tend to spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. I like LinkedIn, a little more civilized and, and thoughtful. <laughs> so the best way to probably get in touch with me is to go to LinkedIn and look for uh, Matt Higgins there. And I'm on uh, Instagram as well. But I, I'm so excited for people out there to read it. It means the world to me. If, if this in some way affects you, changes your life, gets you, changes your relationship with risk, this is why I am doing it. So if you could let me know I'm a vulnerable human being just like you, that feedback you know, makes it all uh, worthwhile. Um, last question I ask everyone before we, we close this out. Uh, after all, all the things that you've accomplished, what does success mean to you? <sighs> What does success mean to me? I, 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 so I went through like a lot of people, a lot of trauma when I was young that sort of shaped the future. And I do believe that the reason why it happened to me, cause I, I witnessed something at 16 that I have not been able to unsee. And that is the power of human intervention when someone is suffering or dealing with subjugation. In other words, if somebody had come along and I had taken an interest in my mother and our situation, she would not, she would be alive now probably. So I believe that the highest and best use of your power, money platform is to ameliorate suffering in another. So the more time I spent and allocate to ameliorating suffering, either through sharing the wisdom of this book or the work I'm doing with migrants and refugees, I've had two private audiences with Pope Francis in the last year, which is amazing. Like um, to me, success looks like an increasing amount of my life devoted to ameliorating suffering and then seeing the impact. The impact makes me feel good uh, maybe that's selfish, but I but it feels like uh, living. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary.
I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay, and what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch U.S.-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text SUCCESS, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much indeed for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 